available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, an ancient practice involving the use of cover crops is gaining more attention across the prairies. Callum Morrison is a second-year PhD student at the University of Manitoba's Department of Plant Science. He says it is a practice that has been used for thousands of years as a way to naturally keep soil healthy. We'll talk to Callum Morrison about his research, and he's looking for farmers' input, and he says it's just as important to hear why farmers aren't growing cover crops and what challenges are limiting their use. Research is being conducted at the University of Saskatchewan that will benefit livestock producers whose crops have been contaminated by ergot. It infects primarily wheat and rye and grasses, and if livestock consume even small amounts of ergot, there is reduction of feed intake, decreased growth. It can also cause gangrene in very high amounts. Animals can lose tails and lose their ears and hooves, and often you'll see in lactating cows, milk output can be decreased. Dr. Denise Bolio is part of a group evaluating the effects of various forms of feed processing using heat and moisture, such as pelleting, extrusion, and steam explosion in reducing the toxic effects of ergot contamination. After the break, Callum Morrison. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Caleb Morrison is a PhD student at the University of Manitoba. Uh, Callum, uh, we've heard about uh, many benefits to growing cover crops, but there are a lot of challenges, especially in certain parts of the country. So maybe just, uh, first of all, tell us uh, about your work. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Manitoba. So I study in the Department of Plant Science under Professor Dr. Von Lawley, who who is researching cover crops on the prairie. So my research has two major parts. The first is a series of field studies where we have two in Manitoba, two in Saskatchewan, and one in Alberta. And we're comparing the effect of cover crops, on cash crop yield and cash crop quality, but also on soil physical properties, soil chemical and biological properties, and uh, effect on... Uh, um, nitrous oxide fluxes, um, but also we're doing the first um, research to how farmers across the prairies are actually using cover crops. Um, and just recently, we've also extended into Ontario as well. So we have a great comparison across four provinces. So what we're really trying to do is actually figure out what farmers are actually already doing. So how are they actually being able to fit cover crops into their rotation? And have they actually seen any benefits yet? And if they have, how long does it take them to see these benefits? Um, And we also want to hear what challenges farmers have actually faced when they've put these into their rotation. And that gives us great information on trying to produce uh, mitigation methods so that farmers... uh, aren't going to be facing as many problems, how we can uh, get around these problems they're facing. We'll hopefully have some great information for provincial and national governments to say, well, look, this is what farmers are actually seeing on the ground. This is the benefits they're seeing, but here's the challenges they're facing. Maybe we can design some policy that could actually uh, make it easier to cover crop in the future. And also we're asking farmers directly, do you have 
uh, where do you want to see research go in the future? What would you like to tell us? Um, so we're giving farmers the opportunity to really lead future research in cover cropping. Um, something else that we're really looking into, though, is we're not just interested in farmers who grew a cover crop in 2020, we're interested in those who didn't in 2020. And that's because it is just as important to hear from farmers who don't grow cover crops because um, we really want to identify those challenges which are limiting cover crop use, helps us to identify what potential there is for cover cropping across the prairies and all the different regions. And again, it also helps us to um, identify possible incentives in the future and identify uh, methods which could be used to um, assist farmers make those decisions. We really want to put cover cropping in a prairie context, local data, which uh, this will be the first time that we'll have really had this wealth of data. Farmers at the moment in the prairies have to rely on data coming from, uh, a lot of it comes from eastern Canada and um, uh, even more from the states. And that data is not really applicable to, to our region. So having local data, which farmers can look at, see what other farmers are doing, help them make their decisions, it's going to be so beneficial. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Um, after some of the announcements that have been made by the federal government and the green strategy, we're looking and talking a lot about uh, practices that are beneficial, carbon capture, environmental benefits. So tell us how cover crops fit into that whole mindset. Uh, well, essentially, whenever there is a cover crop out there growing in the field, it's utilizing the solar radiation um, to produce biomass. And when you're producing biomass, you're essentially fixing carbon out of the atmosphere. And when that cover crop dies, some of that uh, uh, carbon is returned to the soil. So in a way, you're sequestering carbon. So there is a potential there for cover crops to be used as part of Canada's climate change mitigation strategy. There's also some evidence to suggest that um, cover crops may um, affect the nitrous oxide fluxes um, with, uh, within agriculture. And nitrous oxide is also um, a greenhouse gas. Um, cover crops as well. If you grow a legume cover crop, which, uh, for example, would include clovers, peas, beans, vetches, these um, form symbiotic relationships with bacteria in the soil called rhizobium bacteria, which help to take atmospheric nitrogen out of the air and fix it into a form of nitrogen, which subsequent plants can use. Now, that has the potential to be... Um, very uh, useful, again, for mitigating climate change in the future, because at present, the Harbour-Bosch Harbour process, which is used to fix industrial nitrogen, is a very energy-intense process. So the ability for farmers to be able to fix their own nitrogen without this uh, energy-intensive system could, again, be very beneficial environmentally in the future. And then, again, you also have the benefit that some cover crops, um, for example, radishes and also um, a lot of cereal type cover crops, they have the ability to scavenge excess nitrogen. So say you've um, just uh, finished your uh, cash crops and there's a lot of excess nitrogen left over in the field, these cover crops will 
take up that, store it in their biomass, so then when you've got all that heavy rain over winter, for example, you're not going to lose it in the runoff into our lakes and rivers. So you'll keep that nitrogen on the field, and eventually it will slowly be released back when the crops actually need it. So that's the theory there. But you've also got so many other great benefits, particularly in, in a lot of Western Canada, we have a lot of flooding. And with uh, cover crops, you have the potentiality to increase infiltration and water holding capacity of the soil. Um, a lot of cover crops, such as, uh, say, radishes, if you think it's got that really long, deep taproot, so that allows water to infiltrate deep into the soil profile. Um, so potentially more water available to um, subsequent cash crops, but also flooding mitigation. But then you've also just got general, instead of having just a few uh, crops uh, that you're rotating between, you're now including different, uh, different species in your rotation. So that is benefit benefits to wildlife. Some of these cover crops can be grown um, and uh, can be allowed to flower, which uh, helps uh, pollinating insects. So, yeah, there's, there's dozens and dozens of different uh, environmental and agronomic benefits farmers can see. Farmers uh, use cover crops a bit like tools in a toolbox. Each cover crop can provide some uh, benefits very well and some other ones maybe not so well. So what a farmer will do is they'll see what challenges they have and what they actually want to want to achieve, and then they'll select uh, cover crops which can uh, meet those benefits. But also, they have to be very careful that when they're selecting cover crops, they select one which will work in their area. Um, that that they and will be able to um, provide significant biomass in, in the time window that they have. Um, so it's a very specific. Um, decision depending on uh, their farm type and their goal. Lots of environmental benefits, but there are challenges when it comes to growing these crops. And I think probably one of the biggest ones has to do with area and uh, certain combinations of crops and exactly where these farmers are located on the prairies. Yeah, I, I'd, um, across the prairie provinces, I'd say the biggest two challenges uh, that farmers have been uh, telling me about are um, the shortness of growing season as well as um, moisture availability in the fall. And as a general rule, however, of course, a lot of uh, exceptions to the rule across the prairies is the further north you go, the shorter the growing season. So then the, the more difficult it is to grow a covered crop in the fall. And then in general, the further west you go, the drier it is in the fall. So... Um, it can be more difficult to be able to get cover crops established in the fall. Um, however, farmers across the prairies are being very innovative in getting around these problems. When I uh, look at the results coming in from Ontario and compare it to the three prairie provinces, they are dramatically different. In Ontario, almost all uh, cover crops are sown after cash crop harvest. In the prairies, the further west you go with each prairie province, the more likely that the cover crop is started before cash crop harvest. So what 
farmers are doing so that they can get around that fall dryness and also ensure that their cover crop produces the most biomass possible. A lot of farmers are maybe planting their cover crop with their cash crop or at some point during the um, cash crop growing season. Um, and there are opportunities for the north as well for farmers to grow what we call a full season cover crop. And in Saskatchewan in particular, that's very popular with um, organic farmers who use it as a, a green manure, particularly to improve their soil and add nitrogen. And so generally that's uh, um, the field is taken out entirely out of production for a year to improve that soil. Um, so that, that's there. But there's other challenges that farmers in the prairies are facing. One of them is simply lack of information. Um, some farmers uh, may also um, just be a bit worried about the initial investment in, say, uh, seed and other costs that may be associated with planting. Um, that's mainly because, uh, well, obviously any practice will have upfront costs. And so maybe they're concerned that uh, if they will be able to get those uh, costs back in the long run. But hopefully with more research, we can uh, provide farmers with more information on how it will affect their bottom line. So uh, there's some, that's some of the major challenges in the prairies and how farmers are adapting to them. Callum, you discussed earlier about how uh, you want to know, you want to talk to and hear from farmers who have tried growing cover crops, and you also want to hear from those who didn't grow them and why. But uh, you've introduced a survey, and I would imagine that is going to provide a lot of information for you in in your research to get both sides of that uh, situation. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's... it's, um it's going to give us fantastic information because we need to ensure that our data reflects um, all farmers in the prairies. Um, it's important to demonstrate what's happening with regards to cover crop adoption and um, it will help us identify what the problems are, restricting adoption, what the opportunities for further adoption are and ways we can assist farmers adopt cover crops. Um, but also we'll be able to, uh, to see what benefits farmers have actually faced growing cover crops and the challenges they face. You've got quite a few farms signed up. So how many farms are involved? Um, and I think you've mentioned right across the three prairie provinces in Ontario. So uh, what's your mm-hmm. participation level at right now? Well, across the three prairie provinces in the prairie cover crop survey, we've heard from around 400 farmers in Ontario we've heard from about 650 farmers. So um, we've, heard from, we've heard from over over 1,000 people across these four provinces. And I'm still keen to be able to reach even more to a last push. And the amount of farmers we've got in this survey just shows how, how eager farmers are to know more about what's happening um, in Canada with regards to cover crops. Um, so far, we've really been tremendously successful, but we know we can do more. And the more farmers we hear from, the better our data set's going to be, the more comprehensive it's going to be, and we'll be able to represent several different groups of farmers and um, provide the best results for these farmers. 
What kind of questions are included in your survey? Oh, yes. So if a farmer takes a survey, the first thing they'll be asked is if they grew a cover crop or not. And if they say they grew a cover crop, they'll be taken to a specially designed survey for um, cover croppers. We will first ask some questions about um, their cover crop, the basic agronomy of that cover crop, what type of species, how many species in their mix. Um, then we'll be asked why they grew that cover crop, what benefits they've seen, what challenges they've faced, how long it took them to see those benefits. Um, and then um, they'll be asked how it affected their uh, farm net profit, how it affected tillage. Um, and then uh, they'll be asked about their, their farm type. Uh, whereas if you didn't grow a cover crop, they'll, uh, they'll be asked if they've grown before, if... Um, if they're planning on growing cover crop in the future, why might they think about growing one? Um, what challenges have limited cover crop use for them? What's made it difficult? Um, and then again, some basic questions about their farm. Um, if they grew a cover crop, the, um, the survey will take about 15 to 20 minutes. If they haven't grown a cover crop, it's going to be quite a short survey, only about five minutes. But uh, I must stress how both of these uh, both participants, whether they grew a cover crop or not, they are deeply valued and they are very important. Even if you have no, um, you, 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 you have no desire to grow a cover crop, it is really important we hear from you. Callum, thank you for all this great information. Now, uh, farmers interested in participating, uh, how, they, how can they access uh, the survey and uh, a place where they can go and ask questions? So there's several ways farmers uh, can take part. Perhaps the easiest will be to simply Google Prairie Cover Crop Survey, and uh, you should quickly be able to find uh, um, the survey there. Farmers can also find me on Twitter, at Callum Morrison, so at C-A-L-L-U-M-M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N-S. And there, there's a pinned tweet with a link to my survey, and you can also follow me for more information. Callum Morrison is a PhD student at the University of Manitoba studying the benefits and some of the challenges of growing cover crops across Canada. After the break, Dr. Denise Bolio. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. With me is Dr. Denise Bolio, an assistant professor of monogastric nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, looking at some uh, processing options to deal with ergot contamination in feed. So, uh, Denise, first of all, explain ergot and why it is such a concern uh, for the livestock sector. Yeah, ergot is one of a series of, of, of mycotoxins that we see produced by a, a fungus, a, very, a, a fungus that we see it insects, primarily wheat and rye and, and, and grasses. And it causes... Um, in, if, they can, if livestock consume very small amounts of ergot, we'll see decreased feed intake and decreased growth. And um, if they consume more, it, it has an effect on, on circulation, so it can actually cause gangrene. And in very high amounts, they can lose tails and lose their ears and maybe even uh, hoof slopping, you'll see. And also, in, in animals that are lactating, sows uh, that are lactating, it'll cause milk uh, output to be decreased. At what uh, concentration does ergot begin to cause problems 
maybe just explain some of the symptoms and how does it vary from species to species? Yeah, unlike other mycotoxins, which primarily affect non-ruminants or, or pigs and chickens and things, ergot affects all classes of livestock, so including ruminants like cows. Um, we see effects, or CFIA um, has, has listed a, um, uh, a concern about ergot in our feet as low as one part per million, so at really small small levels. And at those concentrations, we, we may or may not see effects at, at any stage. Um, however, um, when we look at slightly higher levels, certainly we'll see effects in pigs, on feed intake, on growth. And at low levels, uh, we will see depressing effects on the hormone prolactin. And this is what causes the decrease in milk output in, in our cells. So the bottom line is with growing pigs, we don't see effects at until we get to higher levels, maybe three or four parts per million. But at any levels, we have seen effects on this hormone prolactin. So we can expect or we would guess there would be an effect on milk production at even really, really low levels. So let's talk about the research that's going on right now and uh, the potential for reducing ergot contamination in some of these grains. Yeah, we were looking at, there's a little bit of evidence in, in the literature that feed processing, so this would be processing with heat and moisture, so um, pelleting, extrusion, steam explosion, for example, um, decreases the, the, the toxicity of ergot. And we think this happens because ergot is actually a series of compounds, ergot alkaloids, and there's many of them. And we think that processing might change the, the profile of these alkaloids to ones that are less toxic. So, so that, that, that was our hypothesis, would be that feed processing using, using heat and or moisture would change the uh, chemistry of the ergot alkaloids to a type that uh, we think are less toxic to the animal. So what's being looked at and compared now, and maybe just uh, explain for us some of the methods that you're using. Yeah, we used um, some screenings from rye and wheat. So these are what would be um, remaining after feed processing, and and they were quite heavily contaminated with ergot. So we started with these, and the first processing we used was steam explosion, which is really, really drastic processing. It uses very high levels of steam under severe pressure. And when we used this, we um, did see dramatic changes in both the ter- the um, absolute amounts of, of, of the alkaloids in, 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 in the screenings and also a shift in the alkaloid profile. And when we incorporate this, these screenings into diets for, for piglets, we did see um, a decrease in growth and feed intake um, with the screenings that were not processed. And processing with steam explosion, um, we didn't see the decrease. So we did decrease, uh, or we we reduced the toxic effects of the ergot alkaloids with steam explosion. However, when we use less drastic um, processing methods, 
such as extrusion, uh, we saw the expected effects of ergot in the diet, uh, uh, but we didn't see uh, a reduction in this toxic effects with the processing. So it appears that this effect we see on reducing the toxic effects of the ergot might only be with really extreme processing. But um, we're still looking at trying to find uh, a processing, um, a type of processing that would be practical and, and would still decrease the toxic effects of the ergot. What is the next step in the research? Yeah, we're still analyzing the results from, from our, 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 our last experiment with the pigs, the growth experiment, um, trying to figure out uh, at what levels are affected and perhaps at what stage uh, we see these effects. We, we don't see a sustained effect of the ergot, so we're trying to figure out uh, what's happening there. Is it effect just on feed intake or does the ergot also have an effect on growth? So we're still analyzing that data and some of the samples we have from, from that experiment. Obviously, with uh, COVID and the pandemic, everything is, is a little bit slower these days. And then our next step will be, to, will be to do a similar experiment with poultry and see if we get comparable effects in poultry. And, and this will help, help us obviously learn about the chickens, but it will also help us um, go back and learn a little bit about the pigs if we see different effects in poultry and pigs. So it might help us explain some of the results that we see in the pigs. But there again, with uh, COVID and the pandemic, everything takes uh, a little bit longer um, to, to, for us to be able to do these experiments now. So Denise, how will this information be a, applied in a farm setting? Well, um, we would think that livestock producers in years where we know there is contamination, um, we wouldn't, for example, we wouldn't encourage producers to feed contaminated grains, but in years where there are severe contamination or there, there is severe contamination, they may want to take uh, steps uh, to prevent the, the effects of the of ergot and or, and or other mycotoxins uh, in case some of the grain they are feeding has these contaminants in it. Some years... Um, low level of contamination is in a lot of our feed grains. It varies from year to year depending upon on the, the growth, uh, uh, the, the environment during, during, during the growing season. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Denise Bolio is an assistant professor of monogastric nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of March 22, 2021. Federal, provincial and territorial agriculture ministers agreed to remove the agri-stability reference margin limit and make the changes retroactive to 2020. But the cost structure of a 60-40 split between the feds and the provinces will stay the same. Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt said he could not support the proposal to change the compensation rate from 70 to 80 percent, saying it was just too expensive. A group representing canola farmers saw the announcement as a small step in the right direction to improving business risk management programs. Chair Mike Ammeter says the decision to remove the reference margin limit retroactive to 2020 was a step in the right direction, but more is needed to deliver effective risk management. 
Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association echoed those statements. SCA Chair Arnold Balicki said the approved changes would make the program more fair for all producers, especially those that provide their own labour and grow their own inputs. Many of the producers impacted by the reference margin limit are in the livestock sector. It was also announced that the enrollment deadline of April 30th would be extended to the end of June. Farm groups expressed their disappointment with the ruling by the Supreme Court of Canada upholding the constitutionality of the carbon tax. Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan President Todd Lewis said the financial impact on the industry will be significant. The Western Canadian Wheat Growers Director Jim Wickett said the government indicated it wouldn't acknowledge work prior to 2017, so there is a lot of work to do to get recognition for carbon sequestered on farms. The Saskatchewan Soil Conservation Association and 10 producer groups all said that a carbon offset system needs to recognize zero-till and continuous cropping. The federal government's proposed regulations use the term additionality and business as usual, which would essentially exclude no-till and continuous cropping from being eligible for carbon credits. Director Jocelyn Velastuk said no-till continuous cropping sequesters an estimated 9 million new tons of carbon in Saskatchewan each year. The Arctic Gateway Group Board of Directors, along with the One North Communities, have announced the appointment of Sheldon Affleck as Chief Executive Officer. Affleck founded Mobile Grain and served as president from 2004 until its acquisition by AGT Foods in 2015. His engineering experience includes coordinating the washout repair of the Hudson Bay Railway. Darren Young will serve as Chief Financial Officer, while Bill Drew also joins the operations team. Arctic Gateway Group Limited Partnership owns and operates the Port of Churchill, Hudson Bay Railway, Arctic Gateway Freight Services, and Churchill Marine Tank Farm. Richardson International made a big investment in Saskatchewan. Richardson is doubling its Yorkton canola crushing plant to 2.2 million tons, making it the largest in Canada. Saskatchewan's Agriculture Minister David Merritt said the decision is good news and will provide a financial boost to farmers across the province. Construction is to begin immediately with completion set for 2024. CP Rail announced a deal to buy U.S. rival Kansas City Southern. Canadian Pacific said the deal, worth $25 billion U.S., would give control of more of 32,000 kilometres of rail in Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. It said it will be the first single-owner rail network linking all three countries. The merger is expected to face close scrutiny by the Surface Transportation Board, a U.S. federal regulatory agency which must approve the agreement. Five projects set up to improve plastic waste management will receive federal funding. Agriculture and Agri-Food Minister Marie-Claude Bebo said roughly $4.5 million would be designated to green agricultural products. Clean Farms will receive up to $1.1 million to develop a strategy to manage plastic waste and increase access to recycling programs. Other projects include testing of an organic bioplastic mulch made from poultry feathers testing a food-grade quality bioplastic ideal for fruit or prepared vegetable containers, developing a new generation of biodegradable bioplastic film and injection molded products mulch film, and seed trays and research and product trials for a straw pulp biopolymer for use in the wood and pulp industry to displace plastic and styrofoam packaging. 
If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarland for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.